Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on care delivery. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Sachin Kale. I'm a palliative care physician um, at Ohio State. And I want to talk to you um, about a topic that's really um, dear to my heart and it's important to me is quality improvement in, in palliative care. So the objectives for this talk are to identify the, what we call the quality imperative in palliative care. And uh, um, one of the uh, scholars has a lot of um, writing in this topic is Arif Kamal, who um, is a palliative care physician from Duke. I sent you guys a article, if you guys read that, QI Pearls. Um, so his, one of his um, uh, first articles in this topic was, was defining the quality imperative in palliative care. So that's where I got that, that title from. I want you guys to be able to recognize the components of the Demaic process by the end of this talk, and then recognize some additional pearls in conducting QI. So that article I sent you had, a, had 10 pearls in QI. I'm going to have a few extra ones as well. So let's talk about the quality imperative in palliative care. And you know, for me in the beginning, it was confusing because you would hear about quality and value in healthcare, and then you'd hear about quality improvement, and kind of understanding how they were kind of related to each other. And that's what I want to spend the next few slides talking about. So are you guys familiar with, with this kind of equation, right? When we talk about value in healthcare, this is what kind of commonly is used to understand what value means. So value means quality plus the patient experience over cost. So patient experience is pretty self-explanatory, and I think cost is also. What quality means in this context can be a, um, can be a little confusing. And I like the IHI um, definition for this. IHI stands for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. So the IHI talks about um, six dimensions in quality in healthcare. So when you're thinking about quality healthcare, you're asking, you're thinking about issues of safety, effectiveness, patient-centeredness, timeliness, efficiency, and equity. And those are really the, the, the elements of quality. And so that kind of gives you an idea of what value means in healthcare. And I'm sure you guys have heard tons about value and quality in healthcare, and especially after um, the ACA passed, there's really been a big push, a renewed push, in thinking about value in healthcare because, our, as you know, our healthcare system just can't sustain the current costs, especially as it, as it continues to climb. And so there's been an increased emphasis and discussion about value-based care, um, accountable care organizations, shared savings models, and patient-centered medical homes. And the common kind of a trend in all of these is the idea of coordination, teamwork, um, shared savings, and shared risk as well, and, and the emphasis on, on quality metrics. And as well as the, the emphasis on developing a quality infrastructure. So programs are now um, being asked and to develop and, and sustain a quality infrastructure. So what is a quality infrastructure? So there's really four elements to a quality infrastructure. Assessment, so you have to be able to have some mechanism to do assessment, some mechanism to report what you assess, a mechanism to monitor, continuously monitor what you're reporting, and also finally a mechanism for continuous improvement. So you think about quality, you think about the elements of a quality infrastructure, 
And then you think about what QI is. QI, that improvement aspect, is an element of the quality infrastructure. Palliative care is a new specialty, um, but it's really, I think, um, at the nexus of all these trends. So quality has been a big, there's been a big push for quality in palliative care. The advanced certification for palliative care by the Joint Commission uh, you must demonstrate the use of data capture to drive continuous improvement. The National Quality Forum endorses quality measures for palliative care. In cancer, um, there's talk that um, there'll be new, new CME metrics, or um, new, me new metrics, I'm sorry, um, looking at things like 30-day readmissions for patients with cancer, looking at things like um, use of ICU within the last 30 days for patients who, who die from cancer, hospice utilization for patients with cancer. These are quality metrics that are going to now um, potentially be publicly reported um, for patients um, in hospitals who, who provide care for patients with cancer. These are intrinsic within palliative care and what we do, right? The things we, we'd be looking at are things like third area emissions for patients with advanced cancer, hospice use. So it becomes really important for us as well. And I think palliative care, the field that we're all in, is, is quality is intrinsic to what we do. So let's go back to this value equation again, right? The reason I think many of you guys got into palliative care and the reason the field itself has grown as much as it has is because we, we, our argument is that this, in this value equation, we are vital to it, especially with patients who have serious life-limiting illnesses, right? So we, our argument is that we improve quality of care for these patients. We improve their patient experience and that we help to reduce costs as well. So, Palliative care, even though we are a small field, our existence and our, I think the, our future is really tied into making this argument for value and quality. And that's why we all have to be experts in this. So again, palliative care focuses on improving patient experience with serious illness. And we've grown um, exponentially over the last two decades by identifying that, those gaps in care and where, where especially palliative care can help improve outcomes. And we've historically emphasized cost containment. And so um, Dr. Arif Kamal mentions, you know, an early argument for us has been kind of framing ourselves as lost leaders. So we, we, um, we save money by, for a hospital system and for patients by appropriate early enrollment to hospice and by managing symptoms. But as we go forward, you know, that argument that we're saving the system money only gets you so far, right? I mean, you're wanting to expand your palliative care, hire more docs, more social workers, more chaplains. If your argument is always just that you're saving the system money, it's harder to ask for more, more funds, right? And so the el other elements of quality that we've talked about really need to be um, emphasized as well. We lack an infrastructure for quality. I mentioned to you guys the four elements of quality. A 2016 um, AHPM survey, um, uh, respondents talked about inadequate time, resources, and training in quality improvement. Um, and they were unsure of how to engage with payers and, and creditors regarding issues of quality care. So that goes to those first three elements of infrastructure. They were unsure how to assess quality, report it, and monitor it to help um, with value-based care. So quality is really important to what we do. It's our argument for existing. And we, right now, don't really have the infrastructure to do it. And so I think that's where it's really an imperative for us to get better at this. Qu 
quality has another, other specific challenges within palliative care. Um, when we think about providing standard work, a standard service to our patients, it can be tough because there is a very strong component of an, the art, right? There's a the science of palliative, but there's the art. And the art of palliative care can lead to variation in how care is delivered and inconsistent outcomes. So if I see a patient um, with multiple myeloma, um, consulted for pain, I might talk about their pain, their nausea, and I might um, talk about their code status. Someone else may come in and talk about their pain and their spiritual beliefs and what life is like at home and do they have a healthcare surrogate, right? And the argument without standards, the argument can be that both, both of us are providing really good palliative care. But if you're inconsistent in how we, we approach things, when we look at it from a big picture standpoint, it's harder to make an argument of what palliative care does. And the, again, the promise of palliative care is in the delivery of outcomes that are often interdisciplinary um, and occur across care settings. This is another reason why quality improvement and quality niches are so challenging in palliative care. We thrive in an interdisciplinary nature. So we are, physicians are working with nurse practitioners, with spiritual caregivers, with social workers. All have different trainings, different backgrounds, um, and trying to get a consistent and, and um, high quality deliveries is difficult if, uh, compared to if you were just a doctor you know, doing procedures and that's, all your, that's where your metrics were, right? And then also a lot of our outcomes, our high quality outcomes that we were trying to push um, to promote palliative care is across different health settings and maybe across different specialties. So take for example 30 day readmissions, right? To have a good quality initiative that, um, that's palliative focused means thinking about quality initiatives within the hospital, at home, between perhaps palliative and oncology and, and different specialties. So it gets more complicated as well. Um, and so that's one of, the, one of the challenges that we face. And that's why it requires discipline, QI, and systems thinking. So what's being done so far to address the quality, um, the gap right now? So have you guys heard of the Measuring What Matters um, initiative? So this is an article I, I can send you guys as well. So um, there's a Measuring What Matters um, paper out for hospice palliative medicine looking at 10 clinically relevant indicators for internal measurement of hospice palliative care. This is important because, again, when we think about the quality infrastructure, we need to know what we're assessing. But if Ohio Health is assessing five measures and Ohio State's assessing five other measures and Cleveland Clinic's is assessing five other measures, but maybe we try to report as a group about what palliative care does, we can't do it, right? It's inconsistent. And so this is the framework that's starting to come about. Consistently, all of us, what are we looking at? And there are also palliative care registries. So you have to be able to report this data. And so palliative care registries have started over the past um, several years to promote national quality improvement, collect and report data on quality and value-based purchasing agreements, and empower palliative care providers to demonstrate value to health systems. So you're starting to see a push into developing this infrastructure. So I hope that kind of helped to think a little bit about what quality is and value-based care is and what quality improvement is and how they're all kind of related to each other. Next I want to talk about um, how do you get there, meaning high quality, high value care from here. 
and that's continuous quality improvement. And I want to talk about a few QI terms that you may, um, may come across. So unfortunately, quality improvement, I could have made four other slides. There's, I could have made two slides just in Japanese of quality improvement terms. Um, there's so much out there in terms of different terminology that can get overwhelming, you know, real, to, be, to be frank. Um, PDSA, PDCA, Lean, Six Sigma, A3, Demaic, a project charter, a cause and effect diagram, FME, FMEA, flowcharts, Pareto charts, Gantt charts, Fishbone, 5S, SPC, critical quality trees, standard work, run charts, again, so much stuff, right? And so it can get really overwhelming. What I want to focus a few slides on is talking specifically, I think, about um, two issues. One is the IHI model for healthcare improvement, so um, which you guys, some of you have heard about, versus Lean Six Sigma, which some of you may have heard about, and how they're, I want to reassure you, they're pretty much the same thing. And then PDSA, which some of you have probably heard about, and DMAIC, which I also want to reassure you that it's pretty much the same thing. So um, make it a little bit more um, user-friendly for you guys. So the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, um, if you guys haven't been on the website, it's fantastic. Um, it, its mission really is to improve the quadruple aim um, for, for folks in, 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 um, across, you know, across the world. Um, and the Open School for QI and Patient Safety Curriculum has been adopted by GME, and so a lot of residents end up going through this curriculum um, in, at OSU, our fellows go through the curriculum. It's a series of, 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 of modules for quality improvement and, and patient safety. And what can get confusing is that in our hospital system, we use DMAIC, um, but you guys learn about PDSA and IHI, and that's why I want to clarify that a little bit. Um, the model for improvement, this is a very simplistic, but this is, this is um, from IHI. There's much more that goes into it. But it really asks the question of what are we trying to accomplish? How will we know that a change is an improvement? And what change can we make that will result in improvement? And then doing a iterative cycles of plan, plan the, understand the problem, plan for it, do, study, study the results, and act and make, a, make another um, amendment to what you're trying to do to make further improvement. And change is tested and adapted through iterative uh, PDSA cycles. Um, so plan. Pl develop a plan to test the change. Think about what, um, what when, why, where. Um, identify data you will need to collect. Do, carry out the test. Study, observe, analyze, and learn from the test and act. Determine what modifications, if any, to make for the next cycle. So a very simple uh, example of, of where um, PDSA might be useful is um, you have your palliative care clinic and you're noticing you have a lot of no-shows, right? So you decide you want to um, reduce the percentage of no-shows you have to your clinic. Um, so you do a run chart. So you first, you first cycle, you think, I'm going to have a penalty for patients if they don't show up. I'm going to fine them $10. You find out that doesn't really work. Actually, fewer people show, you know, there's a higher no-show rate than you thought, right? So you run that PDSA cycle, you think, well, this is not working. Then you think, I'm gonna do phone reminders. I'm gonna remind people um, 24 hours prior that they have an appointment. And you notice your, your no-show rate uh, over successive weeks decreases. Then you decide, you know, after studying the issue more, that one of the problems is that patients have their appointments scheduled for them 
um, and they want to be able to have more control over scheduling their own appointments so they can make sure they can make it. So you, you have self-schedule appointments and then your no-show rate decreases, right? So this is where you know, each, each one of these will be a series of PDSA cycles to kind of understand the situation, think about the best change to carry out, carry out that, that change, study it, and then make an act on, the, act on it again. So that's the IHI model, and then there's Lean and Six Sigma, which, um, so I show of hands, have you guys, anyone heard of Lean and Six Sigma? Okay, good. So Lean and Six Sigma is also confusing because they're two different things, and so now you got the IHA model, you got Lean, you got Six Sigma, it's like two, it's overwhelming. Lean and Six Sigma are often are related and complementary. So Lean is a, is a quality improvement paradigm that was founded by Toyota. Um, and it uh, was revolutionary um, in that its, its focus was on reducing waste, um, pursuing perfect flow, and empowering frontline workers to continuously improve their own processes. So before this, there would often be a top-down a top -down approach. So the boss or manager would kind of say, this is how we're going to do things, and the workers would do it, and th there would be problems. And so with Lean, it really taught continuous quality improvement um, to the frontline staff. So they got to understand, be experts in how to, to continuously improve their own work. Um, it really focused on removing waste from a system and achieving perfect flow. Six Sigma is uh, basically about reducing errors. And so Six Sigma is 99.997% accuracy. If you think about the bell-shaped curve and the standard deviations outwards, it's really looking um, to achieve that kind of accuracy and 3.4 defects per million opportunities. And so these are often uh, combined, you know, the, both of these came out of kind of manufacturing and, and, and you know, engineering processes and then are being applied to healthcare more and more. And I think, you know, again, Lean really looks at flow and continuous quality improvement and Six Sigma really looks at reducing errors. And so you can see how they can both kind of be combined together really well. Um, Six Sigma is really focused heavily on statistics as well. Um, to help reduce errors and to monitor. So then the question becomes IHI, the IHI QI model or Lean Six Sigma? And um, where it can get confusing again is, is as fellows, if you're learning IHI in modules and then your hospital system's using Lean. So they share many more similarities and differences and that's kind of the big, the big thing I want you guys to know. Um, they all emphasize the customer's perspective as a starting point for improvement. Again, this came out of manufacturing. For us, it's the patient and family experience and, and um, perspective as a starting point for improvement. Emphasize continual improvement of the process. People, it's process, not people. Focusing on process and continually improving it. They rely on general principles over specific tools, which I think is important. When you look at that word salad, a lot of the things are different tools you can use. Um, the more important thing is to understand what the principles are and what tools are available. And they emphasize the ultimate goal of transforming the culture into a continuous learning organization. So then you hear about DMAIC. So DMAIC is, a, is kind of analogous to PDSA. Um, DMAIC stands for Define, Measure, Analyze, Improve, Control. And it's a very commonly used paradigm to guide quality improvement initiatives. One question is, do you use PDSA or do you use DMAIC? And again, very similar approaches. 
like PDSA, Dominic is not st a strictly linear process. It's often iterative. You do it a few times. You continue to improve the, improve the process as you're going as you're um, going through it. Um, I think PDSA is often best for rapid cycle improvements. So, for example, if you're trying to decrease a no-show rate, you try something, you study it, you try you, you, you try something else, you study it, you monitor it on a run chart. It's it's probably the best way to do it. For more um, kind of complex projects, Demake offers a little bit more of a rigorous methodology. Um, and why, that's why it's often used for kind of big hospital improvement goals. So this is a Demake roadmap. And you'll see each phase of it and then the kind of the key steps. And we're going to go through this a little bit more. Um, but what I like in this slide, and um, Dr. Ian Gonsenhauser from our um, hospital um, created this slide. Um, you can see how it's very, re very related to PDSA. So define, measure, analyze, essentially the plan phase of PDSA. Improve, the improve part is the do, check, act, and then there's the control phase as well. So they're very, they're very similar. Let's go through each one of these, um, these phases um, so you guys are familiar with it. So what does define mean? So define, the define phase is about prioritizing projects based on patient impact and alignment with organizational imperatives. So the key steps are developing a charter, uh, mapping the process, understanding the voice of the customer, or in our case it's often the voice of the patient or family, and then trying to define exactly what the problem is. Note that the definition of the problem comes after you've mapped the process and understood the perspective of the patient. The questions you want to ask during this phase are, what are we trying to accomplish? What is the project's scope? Making sure you know what's in scope for your project and what's out of scope. And there's a term called scope creep, where you have a pro if you don't have a well-defined project, you keep expanding and expanding it because other people want to have their problems solved within, you know, with the work that you're doing. And how does the current process flow? Um, and what are the inputs to the process? Oh. And what are the critical quality characteristics? What are the critical measurements that really define what quality is in the problem you're looking at? Measure phase is next. Um, there's a, there's a, a saying, what gets measured gets done. We'll revisit that phrase um, in one of my pearls. But that's a well-known well phrase, what get measure, gets measured gets done. So in the measure phase, what you're doing is you're, you're defining the current um, performance. You're going back to your problem statement. Now that you've kind of defined your current process a little bit more, you're going back and saying, is this problem specific enough for this project? You need to plan and execute a data collection plan. So if I'm going to do a project and, and mark an improvement, how am I going to know I'm making an improvement? What data am I going to collect? We'll do that up front. And identify the key measures you'll be monitoring. Questions you're going to be asking yourself are, what, what is the data collection for, for the key outputs, um, critical to quality characteristics or vital inputs? Is your measurement system capable of providing valid and reliable results? Are the relevant metrics visible and widely accessible? Next is the analyze phase. So dissect, during the analyze phase, you're going to dissect root cause of process variability and separate the vital few from the trivial many. Again, you're going to develop a more pro focused problem statement, explore potential causes for your problem, use tools to determine cause and effect relationships, and determine root causes. Questions you're going to ask are, what are significant inputs affecting the output of concern? 
There are different tools you can use for root cause analysis, five whys, uh, cause and effect matrix, a fishbone diagram. Have you guys heard of any of these tools before? Seeing not, nodding, good. Next is improve. This improve phase is when you finally analyze the problem, now you're going to improve. Um, you turn analysis into action. You um, think about solutions for your root causes. You select a solution, develop an improvement plan. You pilot the plan, implement it, measure results, and evaluate benefits. What improvements are needed to achieve the targeted performance levels? You're asking yourself, what are the obstacles, the unintended consequences, and how might the system push back against your changes? And do the improvements have a defined responsibility um, and target dates for implementation? Finally, you get to control. And in the control phase, where you, you verify the results and consolidate your gains. You develop standard practices, you train teams, you monitor performance. Importantly, you summarize and communicate your learnings to the rest of the, rest of the wider group, whether it's the rest of your division or your hospital, and recommend future plans. The questions you're asking during the control phase are, um, what have, is there a mechanism to provide ongoing feedback and prevent backsliding? And the best practices and lessons um, share, are best practices and lessons being shared with the organization. So, I mean, I think in the abstract, it's probably hard to, you know, to, 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 uh, to kind of conceive of all this stuff, but you guys will be um, hearing a lot of the make, I think, as you go forward. And so I think knowing what it is and how it's being used, I think it's going to be really important. So I wanted to end with uh, a few or five uh, QI tips that I've come across, um, you know, as, I, as I've been on my own QI journey. So the first one, um, and this is particularly important to you all as fellows, um, is thinking of a project can be really difficult. You know, as you go further in your career, you might have projects given to you, and then your job is going to be to define that a little bit more, and that's, that itself is a, a hard thing to do. But um, on our end and at OSU, I, I try to um, encourage our fellows to think of a project uh, rather than giving them a project, because, it, because I know it's really hard, and that's why I want them to do it. Um, and because of the learning experience, if they, don't, if they mess up, they'll still learn something from it and to, to carry on with them. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to think about a project. Um, the, uh, these are definitely not the only two ways to think about one, but I think these are two helpful ways. Um, look for waste in the system. Um, and if you find waste in the system, your QI project can be to improve that and reduce that waste. And there's something called a gap analysis that we'll talk about. Very simple concepts, but I think they're really powerful. So uh, let's talk about the gap analysis first. Um, so essentially what a gap analysis is, is what's your best practice? What are you doing right now? If you can measure the difference between that, you've got yourself a QI project. And in palliative care, there are national, and a lot of medicine, there are national benchmarks that can be used as a gold standard to say, this is how things should be done. This is how palliative care should be practiced. And that gives you that gold standard and you can then start to measure what you're doing and try to close that gap. So I'll give you, I'm going to give you an example um, that, I, that I had. So uh, I was involved in a QI project a few years ago where the goal was to improve patient satisfaction um, in, the pain, in, in the GI oncology clinics. And really what they want to do is improve pain management in the GI oncology clinic. So think about how 
broad a topic that is, right? So we were given that assignment, improve pain management. And so like, okay, where do you start? And so, you know, initially everyone had their own idea. So someone said, we need to have pain diaries. All the patients need to do pain diaries. Someone else said, we need to have yoga, access to yoga for our patients. Um, literally, that's, that's, you know, you think, well, have we defined the problem? Do we understand, even understand what we're working on? And everyone's jumping the solutions right away. And so where we finally started to get some traction is when we looked at the NCCN guidelines for adult cancer pain management. So the James Cancer Hospital is, a, is an NCCN institution. And, and there are guidelines for how do you practice pain management for cancer patients. And there's really four sections within that guideline. There's comprehensive pain management, and they, they explain what a comprehensive pain management is. There's um, the primary team pain management, what they're responsible for. There's patient family education and referral to, they call it subspecialty care. So we started to implement that and say, well, these are the standards that the, the guidelines are suggesting. Now we, let's look, now we have a better idea to look at what we're doing, and let's focus on kind of closing those gaps. So as an example, patient and family education, the NCCN guideline said that um, the need um, for patient and family caregiver education should be assessed at each visit. And education should include written materials. So now we're starting to get a little bit of what a project could be. So are we, are we assessing the need for education at each visit for our patients? How are we doing it? Is it consistent? Is there variation in care? So now you can talk to the nurses and talk to the physicians in the GI clinic start to understand. Education should include written materials. This is the NCCN guidelines. Are we providing written materials for patients when we start them on a, a fentanyl patch? Or do we just give them the fentanyl patch, prescribe it, and, and kind of, you know, they go on their way? <coughs> so we start to look at that and start to realize, well, there is written materials, but you have to go, you have to go online to the one source and click on here, click there, and some people are using outdated materials, and some nurses are really proactive about giving them the written materials, but others aren't. Some physicians are proactive and others aren't. There, was a, there is the basis for a quality improvement project, right? So we started to kind of try to close the gap. The current performance was assessment was inconsistent and variation in type of education given for opioid management. This is, this is another way you can look, think of a project, eight wastes. So the eight wastes is a, it's a lean concept, right? Lean looks at reducing waste in the healthcare system. And you could look at waste within your system and try to and, and decrease um, and think about projects. So the acronym for eight wastes is downtime. Um, so the D stands for defects. So the definition is a product or service not meeting the patient or family need. So as an example of a defect we might see in palliative care, if you write a script for OxyContin to a patient, and then they go and they try to fill it and they can't fill it because there needs to be a prior auth, right? A prior authorization. That's essentially a defect, right? We provided a service, we provided pain management to a patient. They couldn't get that service. That's, that's a defect. That's a, that's, a, that's a potential quality improvement project. Overproduction. And again, these all come from industry, right? But they're applicable to healthcare. Um, more earlier and faster than needed. So any service that's being provided um, more earlier fa or faster than needed is, is overproduction and that's a waste. So what's an example of overproduction in palliative care? You know, if you're doing a intense um, discharge planning for a patient on day two of, ho day two of 10 of hospitalization, 
maybe you don't need to do discharge planning or patient education to a patient who's still gonna be here for two weeks, right? It's earlier than needed. Or doing subspecialty palliative care for a patient with primary palliative care needs. Could be providing more, a higher level service of palliative care that's actually needed. And that's actually a waste, right? If you think about it from a systems perspective, if palliative care teams are providing high level palliative care to patients who maybe don't have the need, that means you're not doing it for someone else. Waiting, waiting as a waste is kind of self-explanatory why waiting is a waste of time, right? Not utilizing talent is a really important one, we, especially for our interdisciplinary care teams where we have physicians, nurses, um, chaplains, social workers, not maximizing the talent of all, all members of our team. Also not maximizing the creativity and the problem solving capability of everyone on our team. Is a, waste of is, a, is a waste. Transport, it means unnecessary movement of material equipment information. Inventory means having um, excess supply. So when you have excess supply in industry, right, you, you have to store that supply. Um, some of it's gonna get degraded, so you're, lo you're losing some to, um, to inventory. That's why that's a waste. For us, one way to think about inventory is if, if we, are the, we are sort of the product, and in a no, if patients aren't showing up to clinic, for example, and you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs, that's kind of an inventory problem, right? That's kind of a waste issue, also, uh, a waiting issue also. But if you have an excess supply of palliative care expertise not being utilized, um, that could be an, think about that as an inventory situation. Motion, unnecessary movement by people. If you're practicing in one hospital and your interdisciplinary team meeting is in another hospital and you're having to walk back and forth with team meetings, that's a motion waste. That's QI project right there. Um, and then extra processing, extra non-value added steps. Um, I think about the notes we write sometimes and do we actually, are we doing extra processing in our notes, writing a bunch of things that aren't of any value or non-value add to what our, our objective is, that's a QI project right there. Uh, pearl number two, define the problem before jumping to solution. And I, for the fellows that I've um, worked with, uh, I tell them this all the time. Avoid accepting a superficial definition of the problem just to launch into brainstorming solutions. Everyone wants to brainstorm solutions, right? Everyone wants to sit around a room and start thinking about how we need to fix things. Pain diary, we need a yoga, whatever, right? Without really, really understanding the problem. And when you look at Demaic, for example, the define, measure, analyze, you are continually refining the problem statement, defining the problem until you get to the end of analyze. You, so you go through over half of Demaic before you start to implement an improvement, because you have to really understand the problem. Focus on the process, not the people, right? So you want to really make the assumption in quality improvement that everyone is trying their best, but it's the process that's not designed properly. Um, next, the next uh, pearl is to set yourself up for success, and I, I kind of look at two things. Um, one, make sure your QI efforts are of value to patients in some way, they don't necessarily have to directly, um, directly impact patients, right? So um, if you're looking at motion waste, um, going from one hospital to another to have your interdisciplinary team meetings, that you know, indirectly does affect patients because you, if you can reduce that motion waste, you may have more time to, to, you know, to provide patient care, for example. But there should be a, 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 some value, you need to tie it into some value for patients. 
align with organizational goals. This is really important for palliative care in our field. We, I, I feel we need to continually justify our, our existence, right? We know we are important, um, but because we don't make a lot of money for our healthcare system, we have to continuously show why we are important. And so aligning your QI goals with what your organization wants is really important. And finally, uh, my recommendation for you all as you go forward in your career is really to make sure that, that it fits with the mission and values of palliative care. Um, you guys love palliative care, this is what we do. You want to make sure what you're trying, the improvements you're doing are helping our patient population. You may find yourself as experts in opioid management and all, I know, um, sometimes get pulled in different directions, but um, you want to really make sure what you're doing fits in with palliative care and the QI you're doing fits in with our mission. Um, the second tip I have to set yourself up for success um, is identify key stakeholders um, early. Who needs to know what? And making sure you keep them up, up to date. So this is a really um, simplistic but really powerful diagram, a stakeholder analysis. And when you look at stakeholders, you want to kind of assess what their level of power is and what their level of interest is. And that kind of gives you a sense of how much you need to make sure you're communicating with them during the project. So power is the ability to support or hinder progress of a, uh, the progress of a project. So if you have a, a person who could totally cut off funding at any moment for you, right? They have a high power, in, you know, and you want to think about that and make sure you're, you're uh, keeping them informed in the loop. But also position of an interest. The position of a blocker or supporter. Is this person someone who could hinder your project or someone who could really support your project? And the level of interest. How much do they really want to be engaged? And based on that, it kind of gives you an idea of, of what your communication strategy should be with that, with that um, individual. Are they a key player? Are uh, they someone you just need to keep informed? Someone you just have to make sure you keep satisfied? Um, or someone that you don't really have to worry too much about within your project? It's good as, and this is not uh, an analysis you do one time and then you kind of put it in a drawer. You, you're continuously doing this as you're going through, through your project. Four, beware the tyranny of metrics. This is actually a book that came out a few months ago. Um, it's a great read. Uh, it looks at the tyranny of metrics in healthcare, in the military, in, pu in public education, um, and talks about how we have really focused with, with information technology, we've really kind of um, put too much faith in data and numbers and not looked at the process. And there's, there's a, that's where that second article I sent you guys was about focusing on process. It's not the same author, but it, 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 they're related. So there's a phrase, that which gets measured gets done. Um, what this book argues is that that which gets measured also gets gamed. And so um, there's really great chapters about college rankings and things like that and how you know, the system's been gamed um, there. So you want to avoid thinking that IT is going to solve all your problems. And that's really important. During PDSA cycling, simple, even manually collected metrics may be best because you can get them quickly and you, know, before you, and you can pilot quickly. And then once you have a good process, you can then go to IT to see if you can make it a more, a more sustainable way to do that. So a good example I have that I'm, I'm dealing with recently is um, you know, I co-chair a, a, a clinical practice guideline committee at the hospital, and there's a polynephritis guideline. And so the authors wanted, to, they want to make sure folks with complicated polynephritis get CT imaging, 
right, to make sure there's no blockage or something like that. People with simple polynephritis don't need imaging. And so the metric they have is polynephritis um, and the percentage of patients with polynephritis who get CT scans. So we used that. The problem was they weren't able to differentiate between complicated or simple polynephritis. So you just have a percentage. It's like 50%. There's no benchmark for whether 50% is good or 50% is bad. And even if the, the f they, get, they get the CT scan appropriately, we don't know the process behind what led them to choose the CT scan. Did the clinical practice guideline help lead them to the right imaging, or were they going to do that anyway? Were the, was, the, was the physician even aware of the clinical practice guideline and just happened to get the CT scan? Um, and that's an example of really thinking about metrics um, and what do the metrics mean? Is it accurate? Um, and how does it really help to inform further decisions? Finally, make it visual. So making things visual helps you understand critical inputs and outputs to your system. So these are things like process mapping, flow mapping, um, SIPOC, these are all different tools. Again, you'll, you can learn the tool, you can pick up the tools pretty easily, but when you're defining a process and trying to understand the system, making things visual is really helpful. It often forces you to go to where the work is being done. So Gemba is a Japanese phrase used in Lean, which stands for where the work is being done. And in Lean, they really focus on quality um, improvement um, efforts and experts going to the ground floor, actually talking with staff, really see what's, seeing what's going on. So um, if you were going to improve your no-show rate in clinic, you'd go to the, to the um, the folks who schedule, you know, who schedule the appointments and talk to them really understand what's going on. And making things visual can really be a tool for communication and building consensus, which is really important as well. So a, a quick uh, exam example of this is, um, so we, we were looking at um, our process flow within our, uh, within our interdisciplinary team um, in our cancer hospital. And we have a physician, a nurse practitioner, and a pharmacist. And we really felt that we were kind of, um, we really didn't have any team meetings, and we were trying to, have, we had an overall goal of improving 30-day readmission rates, so we want to look at our process. And so this is a, a, a swim lane, a modified swim lane to look at the current state. And so what we, did, what we looked at, and I, and I followed the team, when I wasn't on service, I followed the team trying to understand what was going on. I found that the NP came in um, early in the morning and started reviewing charts, but didn't always have all the patients that they were gonna see for that day. So they would kind of review charts, but also kind of wait around as well. And then they would start seeing their patients and then they would ask themselves, do I need to, do I need to talk to my pharmacist to help under, you know, make a plan? So sometimes they would review the case, uh, the pharmacist and the nurse practitioner would review the case together. They'd evaluate patients, the nurse practitioner might again say, do I need to talk with the pharmacist? They might talk again. And only towards the end of the day would they then kind of staff it or run it, run it with the physician. And by that time, the recs were sometimes, it was, it was late in the day, sometimes, Rex had already been made, and the physician might think, well, I didn't want to do, well, maybe we should have done it another way. But it's already three o'clock or four o'clock in, in the day, there wasn't, it was like, all right, it's already the end of the day, what are we gonna do? You put the person on a PCA three hours ago, so okay, we'll go tomorrow. And then, and, and so the process was really disjointed. You know, um, people weren't talking to each other, we weren't making plans in a coordinated way. And so mapping this out allowed everyone to see this. 
So when I presented this to the team, you know, I got feedback. You know, it, we, we improved on this map a little bit, and people started to say, yeah, that is kind of a, not the best way to do it. The pharmacists were saying, I want to be able to interact with the entire team also and, um, and get to talk about all the patients at one time. And so we started, what we did was we started to um, implement um, IDT huddles. Um, and so the NP would get, um, have a, a list of patients begin first thing in the morning, review, review p charts, evaluate the, the sickest patients, and then 11.30 to 12 o'clock we had an interdisciplinary team huddle where it was, everyone was, was in that room, the, the NP, the pharmacist, the physician. If there was a tough case, because we identified these patients before noon, we would go as a group and see them together and come up with a plan together. And be able to get Rex to the primary team earlier in the day that was consistent and reflected the entire palliative team um, uh, feeling. Now, I could have given that talk to, to my group and said, we, this is what we need to do. But without making it visual and showing it to them, um, it would have been harder to kind of build consensus for us to do this. So in summary, um, Quality improvement is essential for excellent palliative care. I hope I helped uh, talk to you guys about the quality imperative in palliative care and why it's so important. IHI, lean, and PDSA, DMAIC have much more in common than different. Um, and so if you're learning PDSA through the IHI module, you are still, um, you can still apply it to, to lean and DMAIC very easily. And finally, understanding and adhering to QI principles will lead to better project outcomes and ultimately better patient outcomes. So uh, thank you very much. I know we got started late, and so we're running over late. Um, any questions anyone has? Yeah, skip. Yeah. Perfect. It's the end of my time. Uh, thanks. I just wanted to comment. Um, one way I've looked for things to work on is what's frustrating people. Yeah. And. Uh, Two examples uh, in, in our own program was uh, inefficiencies in our team meetings mm -hmm. and uh, spending two hours on a team that should have taken an hour or less. That means less time at home with your family, less time solving patient problems, et cetera, and getting your work done. And um, also having to accept that some of that inefficiency was my responsibility. So I was leading, leading the process change but also had to figure out that I was part of the problem. So that's willingness has to be there if you're going to really analyze something objectively yeah. to accept where you might be part of the problem. The other thing is looking at patient inefficiencies, and one of the worst we saw was our phone tree for our hospice program and how it was really upsetting people. And when we finally did an analysis, gathered data, and talked to patients, we really implemented some profound changes. So that's just a perspective on, on my uh, experience in two situations where we implemented important process changes. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And Any, this stuff does seem really dry, but it's so um, important and enriching when you do it. Yeah. And when you're engaged in it and, and you can see the changes made uh, for your team. It's so important. Anyone else have any comments, questions? Okay, thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. 
so you don't miss any of our new content. Make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.